Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Karina Kern, a research fellow at University College London and president of the London Evolutionary Research Network. In this episode, I wanted to learn about Karina's journey to the longevity aging biotech field and gather her thoughts on where she believes longevity science is going. Without further ado, here's Karina Kern. All right, Karina, thank you so much for joining the HBAN podcast. I'm really excited for this conversation we have in store over the next hour. I think the best way to get started, and I think what our audience is interested in, is your your upbringing, your background to start. You know, I think people in the U.S. are always curious what's going on in other countries in the longevity space, right? So I'm I'm definitely interested to hear about what you are up to, what got you into the space, and yeah. So if you may, please, Karina. Sure. And just to say thank you very much for the invitation, Dylan. In terms of my upbringing and background, so I am half Swiss and half Indian, very mixed. Um, And I grew up primarily in southern um, India. So this beautiful place in the south, in the western Ghats. So they're mountains in the south called the Nilgiris, which means blue hills. Have you ever been to India? have not. I have not. It's on my bucket list, though. Uh, so I highly recommend it. Very beautiful. Covered in forests, covered in tea plantations. So I had a few friends actually visit. And the first things they said to me is as soon as you go up the hills, you're surrounded by this beautiful scene and you get this very strong smell of freshly cut tea. So, you know, very tranquil. And in terms of my upbringing, so I was a real tomboy growing up. I was always outside, loved exploring, but as a consequence, as you can imagine, always injuring myself or getting into some sort of trouble and always being taken off to the doctors for some problem or the other. In terms of my personality, so I was always very, very curious from a young age. So even at these doctor's appointments, I would sort of bombard them with questions. You know, I remember when I was probably six or seven, I'd cut my leg on one of the tea bushes because when you prune them, they're you know very sharp, the ends of the branches. And I remember debating with the surgeon. He, you know, he he wanted to stitch up my leg because the cut was quite deep. And I said, Well, you know, what are the consequences if you don't? Can't it just heal? I saw the big needle in his hand. So, you know, yeah. I needed good justification. But you know, if, even if it was a tetanus injection or whatever, I would cross-question them. And in this particular incident, the surgeon was so amused, he gave me a little paperweight on his desk that I have to this day. But what was interesting growing up, and something that's stuck with me from a very young age, is while all of my injuries and diseases, if you like, be it a cold or whatever, when I went to the doctors, they would always tell me what was wrong immediately and treat it. And then I was cured and I would fine. And what left a big mark personally is when my grandmother was sick at a young age. So this is when I was 10 or 11. You know, suddenly everything was very different. The same doctors had very different answers and responses. And it wasn't suddenly, you know, oh, here's the disease, here's the treatment. Suddenly it was, oh, this is natural. This is the aging process. And I saw her decline 
very, very quickly. And to me, it looked like, you know, these are diseases, clearly. So why does no one have the answer? And it's interesting. I think children sometimes ask the best questions and are the most logical. I don't know who that was. Okay. No worries, no worries. So I think children sometimes ask the best questions. And, you know, as a child, I just could not accept and I could not understand why we don't treat aging diseases. And that stuck with me. And, you know, those sort of very young formative experiences sort of drove me to pursue a career in aging. So that's how I got into it. That is my background there. Sort of like a hero story, like you see something tragic that happened with, you know, I don't want to call myself, I'm not calling myself a hero for God's sake, but you know, it's like the, the, tra- you know, the, you know, the tragedy of the reality of aging, right, is I think a, a big motivating factor for a lot of people, at least me, yes. it sounds like you too. Very much. Yeah, so I'm not a scientific purist here. You know, I'm not, it's not just, oh, here's another mystery of the universe that I'd love to understand. It's very much the tangible implications can we you know stop these awful diseases right right yeah no it's you know the universe is great to ponder right theoretically but yes. you know, when it comes to human health we can do without as many theories and more action you know yeah i'm, I'm with you i'm with you there cool yeah yeah that's fascinating i didn't i didn't realize you were from india and switzerland that's that's quite a mix very interesting so can you tell us a little bit then about your academic and professional career what when was it that you decided to you know pursue the biology of aging and also what's your what's your ongoing work on what are you doing these days can you give our audience a little bit about what you're up to sure so i started with quite a broad degree in biochemistry at the university of london so aging is something that always fascinated me and i ended up going into the institute of healthy aging one of the oldest and most prominent institutes that focus solely on the biology of aging in the world, actually. You know, the history of aging at University College London dates back to the 1950s. So I got in, you know, from, as I said, very early stage of my PhD over there. I'm now a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute. So I've been in the aging field now around a decade. My initial work was all focused on this small little roundworm called C. elegans, very commonly used to study aging. And I think for those who don't know too much about the aging field, just to give you a little bit of the history. So aging really boomed, the aging field really boomed in the 1980s, Mm -hmm. 1990s. The reason for this is because it was discovered in this particular species that if you switch off single genes, you can produce huge lifespan extension. Now that uh, was a striking discovery because prior to it, everyone thought the aging process was just inevitable. There was absolutely no way to intervene. And it was some sort of a, you know, it's like entropy. It's just, you know, deterioration that you can't do anything about. It's like a car that rusts or wears down. Suddenly, aging had a genetic element. It was in our genes. Now, the goal ever since has been to try and replicate those findings in humans. If you can get these little worms to live tenfold, that's like humans living to a thousand years, why can't we do the same in humans? And in a way, there's been a bit of a failure of the aging field because we know what the genes are. We know all the molecular pathways associated. So why can't we get the extension in humans? So my PhD, in a way, was a bit of a watershed moment here. It actually uncovered one of the major causes of aging 
in this species, the most, you know, arguably the most commonly used laboratory model, where it discovered that the aging process in this species might just be fundamentally different to the aging process in humans. So it was an odd, it was an odd finding because it was one of those two step for, you know, two steps forward, one step back. So bittersweet, but at the same time useful because it opened up new avenues for research. Sure. So moving on from that, because that's now published. So it was two nature journal publications. And so that's done. Moving on, more of my work focuses on what actually causes human disease. It's very odd because for some reason, medicine and aging research have sort of evolved in complete isolation to one another. And as you say, enough with theories. I, I agree and I disagree there because on the one hand, you have a problem of theories that you can't test, theories that don't link to medical etiology, you know? Theories that aren't really rooted in anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you ask, well, how does something like Parkinson's come about or cancer? You know, where is this missing link? And I think in a way you do need the theories, but you need theories that give some tangible outcome. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work focuses on that. It focuses on bridging this gap between aging theory and medicine and actually coming to some sort of a tangible outcome. Understood. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, you know, I'm not a scientist. So, you know, I am out with theories and with the practicalities of <laughs> medicine for me personally. But no, I totally get what you're saying. You know, it's impossible to create medicine if the theory is wrong, right? If the theory that the medicine is being created on is not fully correct. So I, I retract that statement from before, please. So this is, might be a little bit of a loaded question and, you know, be as specific or as vague as you want to be. But what is aging science to you? What is geroscience? What is it? Can you explain it in a way that, well, you know, for the purpose of this podcast, can you explain it in a way that maybe a politico might understand or, you know, lay people might understand? Because this this field is very nuanced, very complicated. There's, you know, some people think one thing, other people think the other. What is it? What is aging science to you? So the simplest way to answer this question is to ask. What is the relationship between aging and age-related disease? That's the question you really need to answer. And that's what there's a lot of argument over at the moment. Is aging distinct from age-related disease? And I think sometimes there's this false dichotomy. Aging very much is age-related disease. Now, some of these diseases and pathologies of aging are life-limiting cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all of these are life-limiting. But then you also have the pathologies that aren't life-limiting, your hair going gray or your skin wrinkling. These are non-life-limiting pathologies. As soon as you start to understand aging as a collection of all of these pathologies, then you start to have a very clear understanding of what aging is. Mm, okay. It is pathological. It is not natural. You know, there's, some, there's something that you need to intervene in. So I think that sort of clarifies what aging is. It's a collection of many diseases. Now, are these diseases somehow linked to one another? So a lot of medics, they dislike the word sometimes aging because it doesn't really make sense to them. So, you know, if you wanted to study cancer, why on earth would you understand a process like the menopause? That's not going to give you any information on cancer. However, if you look at laboratory model organisms, and some of the experiments done, interventions, say in mice, 
they affect many age-related diseases together. So clearly something is connecting these. So the way I like to look at it is that probably many mechanisms, pathological mechanisms that give rise to age-related disease. Some of these give rise to many, some give rise to only one disease. That's the best way to look at it. How do we know there's no one central cause to aging? Simply because no intervention to date has led to an indefinite lifespan in any organism, right? Something eventually kills the animal. So you affect, you know, certain diseases and then another one crops up. Right, right, right. So let me ask you this. You don't think there's like a unified driver of aging? What's your theory on that? Because I've seen people talk about that. What's your take? Is there one single cause of driving or is, or is there one that, you know, which one would you say causes the most amount of disease or, or damage or whatever you want to say? So I, there's definitely not one primary cause of aging. And we know this. It's common sense from all of the experiments in any model organism. No mechanism to date, as I said, leads to an indefinite lifespan. The animal eventually dies of something. And often you can mix interventions and get additive effects on lifespan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So this would argue against a central underlying mechanism. That being said, it's likely that there are a few pathological mechanisms that lead to most of the aging diseases we see. Mm Could these be understood using one or few theories? Perhaps, you know, that's the, I wouldn't even say billion dollar question, trillion, trillion, you know, yeah. that, that's a question everyone would love to answer. I would think of it as something like the germ theory of disease by Louis Pasteur. I don't know if you've come across it. Mm-hmm. It's just this idea that, you know, many infectious diseases around us are caused by pathogens. Now that was a theory, right? It's one that's been proven. But based on that theory, we've been able to explain things from rabies down to tuberculosis Mm -hmm. and come up with interventions to treat various infectious diseases, be it antibiotics or, you know, vaccines. So similarly, there might be certain underlying theories that would explain many age-related diseases. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there might be, you know, a handful of causes. That's certainly a possibility. So, I mean, the theory that I think I and most people in the industry that aren't, you know, academics are familiar with the nine hallmarks of aging. What what are your thoughts on that kind of framework? Is it something that you use in your, you know, thinking or is it something, you know, I see in the longevity field, there's so many people who support one camp, the other camp. So which camp do you fall in? Do you think the hallmarks is a good framework or do you think it needs to be improved on? So the hallmarks of aging is a very well-written review. Mm-hmm. on various factors that correlate with aging. It's a beautifully written review. Highly recommend for, you know, anyone who wants to get, you know, a taste of what all is out there in the aging field to read it. Yeah. That being said, the hallmarks of aging is not a paradigm of aging. It is not an explanation of why we age. Right. It is merely a review of various things that correlate with aging. So the hallmarks of aging was actually written after a paper called The Hallmarks of Cancer. And that is a paradigm of cancer. It explains why we get cancer, certain steps that take place that give rise to cancer. The hallmarks of aging is not an explanation. With many of the hallmarks, you don't know if those are causes of aging or symptoms of aging. Right. So I would not take it as an underlying paradigm by any means, and it wasn't intended to be one. But it is a good review. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 
It's a good way to put it. All right. So I have some other questions that are less related to your work in the biology of aging and more about the social implications. You know, I think that's something that people are interested in because, you know, that's it, it's going to affect every way we live, right? The, the introduction of, course. of these medicines is really going to change how we do relationships, how, you know, how the government functions, this, that, and the other thing. So what do you think about longevity medicine in the context of it being widely available to everybody? Do you see that as, I mean, obviously it's better that it's available to everybody versus not. How do you feel about the introduction of these drugs to society? What's your take? Is it ethical, non-ethical, you know? I have the feeling that you're going to say it's ethical, but I would, I would like you to explain why. 100% ethical. Yep. I think it's ethical as soon as you realize there's no distinction between aging and age-related disease. As soon as you understand that, asking whether or not it's right or just to treat aging is asking like whether or not it's right or just to treat you know, tuberculosis. Right. It's a disease. In fact, it's, you know, just to understand the intricacies here, I think it was, what, 1994 when the World Health Organization even termed menopausal osteoporosis, clearly pathological, leads to, you know, fractures, severe bone problems. It was only in 1994 that they, you know, termed it as pathological and a disease. Before then, it wasn't treated and it was just seemed as, you know, natural. So I think we're in a similar position here with aging. You know, it's clearly pathological. I certainly hope everyone would endeavor to make it widely available. I think it would be monstrous to come up with treatments for any disease and then withhold that from everyone. You know, in terms of implications to relationships to the future of the world, I think going back to the question of ethics, number one, Yes, there's obviously the problem of sustainability. And I'm a real champion of sustainability. I have been involved in many sort of clean tech projects. But I just don't think one way to be sustainable is to withhold medication. That is not on the table. That is, you know, there are many things we can do. Withholding medication is not one of them. Yep. In terms of our relationships and how all of that is going to change, For me, aging is like a fire in a building. Because if I think back to all of the worst, most traumatic moments in my life, it is when somebody I loved had a disease that couldn't be treated. And I've just felt so helpless. I'm sure doctors feel helpless. That is the most traumatic experience that anyone is likely to, you know, go through, especially in the developed world. And I think aging is this fire. The point is you need to put that out. You need to stop that. Asking about other things like how is it going to change our relationships? That's like you bring in the fire extinguisher and you ask, well, maybe the fire extinguisher is going to damage the table and chairs. I mean, forget that. Put the fire out to begin with. Well, I, I, you know, I was saying it more as... is it going to, I don't think it's going to damage relationships. I think it's going to make relationships intergenerational and, you know, different than they are today in a better way. That's the kind of thought I go down because if, you know, older people can remain more active in society, I, I think that just, you know, increases the odds that people from Gen X and Gen Z or, you know, boomers and millennials can can so- interact socially and, you know, potentially go into business together or you know, go to the club or whatever it is. But I find that interesting just because society is really segregated, right? Like you don't see someone obviously at the dance club over X age, right? It's it, it but, but I, you know, I, 
it's a, it's a shame. I, I'm not looking forward to the day where I don't go to the dance club anymore. I love dancing, you know, like, and I'm sure people who have kind of passed that threshold feel the same way. So that's more of what I'm thinking. You know, I, I can't imagine the introduction of longevity medicine doing bad on that end, like hurting social relationships and the social dynamic. But you know, I guess we'll see, right? But I think it's our job, you know, part of our job to try to do everything we can to ensure, I mean, at least my job in, in the political world, to ensure that things don't go wrong, right? We can do something at the political level to make sure that with the introduction of longevity medicine, the social dynamic doesn't stray too far from what we are or, or doesn't doesn't stray too far from what we want, I'll say. Yeah, for so sure. I, I get what you're saying, though, for sure, for sure. You know, the, the aging definitely is the number. We can figure everything out after, for sure. Cool. So that was kind of the next topic I wanted to discuss. Let's move on to some some geopolitical type questions. Obviously, A4LI does political work. So I, I personally am very interested in this. And you being from originally, your background is from Switzerland and India. So you really are international. So can you kind of tell me a little bit about you know the 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 aging biotech industry in Switzerland I know it's it's kind of really alive there there's a lot of activity in India can you can you kind of tell us what's going on there and you know in other countries maybe that you've seen how is the aging biotech development of, of the industry different from let's say the US more focused on the medicine side you you tend to see slightly less of a focus on research i would say in India and more of a focus just in medicine and more medicine in the young. I think that's just tradition. And I think it's only once you have this burden of a very elderly population that you tend to move in to aging and age-related research. And I think India is likely going to follow suit in, in, in that sense. India is, their demographics are structured that I think they're, you know, the, the issue that we're facing and, you know, all the other countries are facing with increasing retiree age and decreasing work work age population. India, actually, I, I've been, I looked into this. They're not going to experience that for another like 40 years, 50 years. Yeah. So yeah. They, India has a long runway before they, you know, are dealing with the silver tsunami, which is good for them. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, and I think also it's again how aging is viewed. You'd be surprised that this idea that aging is natural Culturally, how you view aging, a lot of that come, comes into play. I mean, one beautiful thing about India is the respect for the elderly. That's one thing I have to say. But then again, that might be a double-edged sword. Again, you know, less of a desire to try and intervene in the aging process sort of comes along with it. In terms of the global dynamic, one thing that's always fascinated me is how different theories sometimes develop in different countries. And there's not always cross, cross-pollination of ideas. Hmm. So a very extreme example of this was seen during the Cold War with antibiotics being developed, you know, in the West mm-hmm. versus to try and stop infectious disease and especially bacterial infections. The USSR was developing bacteriophages, so little viruses that can attack bacteria. Mm-hmm. And today we only have the antibiotics, right. you know, and there's much less work done on the other side, owing again to historic reasons. But, you know, this lack of a cross-pollination of ideas, you also see it in the aging field. Mm. Certain interesting theories of aging that developed in Russia, an example, say there was an aging researcher called Vladimir Dillman. You know, you don't hear too much of his ideas. Some of them make good sense. I implement them in some of the work I do, but you don't see too much of it. And I think one of the things that would be quite nice 
is probably to have more international conferences and have more you know, of a cross-pollination of ideas rather than different countries developing their ideas in isolation to one another. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's a few good conferences in the aging field, like Europe, that kind of get a lot of people from all, all walks. But yeah, definitely. You know, and it's a shame that geo, you know, outside geopolitical events kind of cause these rifts, right? I mean, yeah. here's a question. If the Soviet Union ended up being the more victorious side in the Cold War, would we be not using antibiotics or What's the deal with that? I didn't know that. That's that's quite interesting. Yeah, who knows? Well, you know, you could hazard a guess. It would be interesting. All sorts of questions there, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't. Some people don't realize that you know how much. I mean, obviously, it's 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 obvious when you think about it. But how much geopolitics really affect the science, and and the science affects the geopolitics, right? I mean, it's a self feeding cycle there. So yeah, I'm I'm with you. You know, more international collaboration will make this go faster. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure the Human Genome Project was able to be so successful because of the international collaboration, right? Oh, definitely. So the more we can implement that kind of model, I think the better for humanity, right? You, you, I would hope you'd agree. I think you would agree. Yes. Cool. So here's something also that, you know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about if these medicines are going to be available to a select few or everybody, right? And obviously the goal, I think, for every researcher in the industry and every, you know, biotech entrepreneur and advocate is to make this for everybody. I don't think anybody is creating drugs for rich people. I, I know I'm not doing that for this. That's not my goal. So let's imagine a, a scenario. Let's let's say a metformin, a rapamycin type of drug, something that you know, on this uh, in, in the sense of being very cheap and available to everybody. Let's say something very effective comes along and is available to everybody in the world. Do you see this helping health discrepancies and disparities between nations, or do you think it's going to further exacerbate it? How, how do you see this working? Because there's a lot of countries out there that have life expectancies in the 60s and some in the 50s, right? Do you think longevity medicine fixes that issue, or do you think you know more work on the sort of infrastructure sanitation side is still needed? I mean, I guess both, but how do you see longevity medicine factoring into some of those underdeveloped countries and helping their life expectancy. Yeah, I, I don't think we're at this stage where we're going to get this one wonder drug that's going to come and fix all age-related diseases. Hypothetically speaking, even if you did, there's a lot that still needs to be done on the infectious side, for mm -hmm. sure. Also, in just things like injury, stress, diet, all of these things affect lifespan. In fact, you can have two broad buckets. You have the broad bucket of disruption to normal function. So that's your injury, your infectious disease, anything external that shortens your lifespan. And then you have aging, which seems to be internal. Something from, the, from within us is causing us to age. I think one thing for sure, if we did manage to make people live for longer... I think, you know, there would be a much larger onerous in governments to try and get rid of the infectious disease because then life is so much more valuable. We wouldn't, we wouldn't take life for granted, at least as much as we do now. If you're losing, if you're losing your life at 20, but you're only expected to live till, you know, 60, but first 100, right? I think there's probably more motivation on the government. That's a, that's a great point. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So let me ask you this, and this has nothing to do with geopolitics. This is more of a language question. How do you feel about health span versus lifespan discussions? Because obviously the word health span has become the flagship word, right, for the industry. Everybody uses health span as 
you know, the term that we're trying to push here. But then sometimes, you know, and, and I obviously fall into line there. I'm not trying to be someone who strays too far, but I do like to explain to people, you know, I, I think the goal here also is to increase lifespan, right? I don't think anybody is looking to just stick with the status quo and make you super healthy until the day you die, which I mean, that would be good for the economy and stuff, but we also want to extend the amount of life people have because life is a good thing. And to your point, if we extend lifespan, you know, governments will be in that specific case, governments will be more motivated to help on the infectious disease and, you know, sanitary or whatever we want to call it side. Right. So what are your thoughts on lifespan versus health span? Are you in one camp or the other? I think everything is context dependent. And I think once we put everything into context, most people would agree. So in terms of living forever, I think that's still fantasy. We're, when, you know, that's far too ahead in the future to even bother discussing. So that aside, so moving aside this idea that we're never going to die and just focusing on immediate health span, immediate lifespan, I think what you have to ask yourself is what ends up killing an individual? Does this sort of mystical process of aging kill people? No, not really. What kills you is a disease, right? So you, you know, individuals die of a heart, I'm sorry, a heart attack, a stroke, cardiovascular disease, whatever. Some disease ends up limiting lifespan. You take out that disease, what's going to happen? You're going to increase both health span and lifespan. So as an example, say an, in, in, ah, an individual has cardiovascular disease, you give them statins, they live a bit longer and they are healthier. You know, they then get cancer. You give them chemotherapy. Again, they live a bit longer and are healthier. I think as soon as you realize, again, aging is the diseases of aging, then there's no way you can increase health span and not affect lifespan. Right, 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 right. You know, the two come hand in hand. And there's no problem with extending lifespan a little bit. I mean, it's not morally good for someone to die of, say, an infectious disease. There's no sort of, you know, questions about that. So why should there be questions about someone dying from cancer or Alzheimer's or any aging disease? Yeah, the idea that we're not going to die is a little, you know, that, that's a, it's pretty ridiculous, right? I, I remember reading a article, and, and that's depressing to say because I like I like life. I have no intention to die, but you know, and I'm going to fight against, you know, I'm going to try to live as long as possible. I think that should be the goal of everybody. But I, I remember reading a study that even if we cured all disease and all aging, we'd still have a life expectancy of about a thousand because everyday accidents or murders or things like that still are going to be prevalent in this world. Maybe less, but they're still going to be around and they're still going to kill you, right? Accidents and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So unfortunately, yeah, until we alter human nature and make it so that we're safer and less, less angry, I think, you know, the whole idea of us living forever is definitely not going to happen. But yeah, I mean, it, it's especially in the political realm, it's not very pragmatic or practical to talk about that, right? You know, you need to really be pushing for things that are achievable in the next year, five years, 10 years, you know, we need to kind of shorten our horizons a little bit and get things done in the here and now. And, you know, in 80 years, 50 years, 10, whatever the amount of years is, you know, if, if that possibility arises, then we can deal with it from there. But the first step, obviously, is, you know, figuring out truly what is aging and creating some interventions for the aging process to, to, to get us the first leg of living healthier and longer. So yeah, that was, that was a great, great explanation. Yeah. I think, you know, regardless of political background or even religious background or whatever you name it, nobody is going to dispute that taking out these diseases, these immediate diseases and getting some lifespan benefit is a bad thing. Right. right. You know? 
Yeah. You know, sometimes you'll like hear that, like I've seen this a few times, like you'll get, I've never actually experienced this, but some people will say that like super religious people will oppose this because it's not natural. Right. But like, I've never seen a religious group opposing the development of chemotherapy. Right. And it's the same kind of idea. You know, if you, if you, if you support treating the age related diseases the way we do now, then you have, you know, by logical, but by logical. Cut that by logic, you have to, or you know, creating therapies for aging too. It's it's the same exact thing, right? So, so yeah, I'm with you. In Uh, fact, just to say, so I myself am Christian as an example, and I mean, I wouldn't say I'm in this field working to stop these diseases, despite the fact I'm, you know, my religious (laughs) beliefs. It's because of them very much that I'm trying to do some good. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. You know, it's I I don't want to sound like a you know super religious, but you know, it, it is sort of the work of God a little bit. Right. I mean, it's it's good work. Right. It's definitely not bad work. I'm, I'm going to get too political, so I'm going to stop myself. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Absolutely. And I don't think anybody, whether they're religious or not, is in this field to, you know, for any other reason, but to help people live longer. So and, you know, it, it's good. There was that Brian Johnson article recently. Right. That kind of peeled, peeled the onion back, peeled the layers back. Right. And kind of showed that, you know, even he is not fanatical in thinking that, you know, he's going to live forever. He's very practical and understands that there are, you know, steps to be taken before we get there. Right. So I think demystifying this field and, you know, really getting more eyeballs on what we're trying to do is going to be a good thing. So on on that question, you know, do you have any sort of thoughts on making longevity and aging research more mainstream? You know, how how do we get it on the front page of the New York Times or front and center on CNN's webpage? Like, how how do we make it more mainstream, more interesting for, you know, lay people and typical people who aren't in this field? Yeah, I would say just to clarify what it is that individuals are working on, what the goal is. You know, as soon as you say the goal is to treat these devastating diseases, that's going to help bring it to the front page. I think also, as soon as you start challenging orthodoxy, and this is something that, you know, I've done very much in my own career, challenging accepted ideas that aging is natural, we should accept it nothing can be done. As soon as you make people question that, you open their eyes to the fact that, you know, it's not inevitable, you know, it's not impossible, can do something about it. I think that in itself will bring it to the front page. Gotcha. One thing, you know, that I see, this is a good thing, obviously, but there's not that much drama in the longevity field. There's not like too much debate to be had. I guess there is, but it's a, it's a, it's a sophisticated and complex debate more around whether certain treatments are feasible versus not like that that's the question i i think that you know sparks debate but longevity is a pretty like like you said when you explain it in the most basic sense everybody supports this so it's not like people really are going to push back on what we're doing i i you know even in the political space when a congressional office says no to you know one thing or the other it's never because they don't support it it's just because they have this that or the other thing i think everybody supports this field so how how do we make longevity sexier to like the mainstream public, you know, like how do we make it something where they want to tune in or read more articles? And instead of it just being like, Hey, CNN posted this interesting article about longevity. Oh, I'm going to flip to the next thing. How do we get them to click and read and learn more? What's, what do you think? So the question I would ask is what is the goal of doing that? Why would you want to get them more interested? And the reason why I ask this is, is it because one, you want them to start, you know, trying to intervene themselves in the aging process, look for certain interventions? Is it because you want them to help fund research? Is it because you want them 
to, you know, especially younger individuals get interested and pursue a career in research in the longevity field. And the reason is very important because number one, there's very little we can do about aging at the moment. I mean, I wouldn't take rapamycin or metformin or anything. It would be extremely reckless. And I certainly wouldn't encourage anyone else to. Could come up with all sorts of negative effects. Might, you know, one might end up going blind eventually. Um, if it is to fund research or if it is to spark the interests of younger individuals, you could target it a bit more. So I don't know, what would you say? What is the primary goal there? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the goal, the, the goal is definitely not to have people take drugs that are not, you know, fully approved for aging, right? So that's definitely not the goal. Yeah, I, I would say the goal is maybe not even funding, you know, just making people more generally aware so that you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this from a political context. So, so that when there's a bill, right, that needs to be passed for longevity purposes, there is a an informed and interested constituency backing the passage of that bill, right? That's that's in my mind the goal. But I, I think in general, we want people to be more aware aware of this so that they can be involved on the political side or be involved on the mm -hmm. fundraising side or investing side, nonprofit side, or just be someone who can talk about this with other people like the, you know the power of spreading the message is, is is it's not a little power there you know it's important right having people in there you know I, I might be dating myself but maybe not drinking tea in the parlor you, you might you guys might still do that over there but you know like we, we want this to be I think there's a lot of value in longevity becoming a tea time discussion right like something where people sit down and discuss an article they read the same way they do if you know if they're reading something about geopolitics or something about domestic politics right I, that's the goal in my head you know definitely not to push people to take drugs that are not fully approved that that would that would not be great yeah i think it's changing this opinion again that you know it's okay to age we should accept it and I think this is just a psychological thing. When something is very tragic and very inevitable, you know, as humans, we try and find the greater good in it. And aging-related disease is one of those things. I think as soon as you start telling people your loved one does not have to die of this awful disease, there's something that could be done about it. You know, if there were more articles or more sort of out there to convince people that it is not inevitable. I think that in itself would get them thinking. Sure. sure. Yeah. You know, to that end, I mean, I guess there just needs to be more longevity articles, right? They don't even need to be sexy enough to get people to click on them and scroll through. Like they just, there needs to be more, I think, on what we're doing in the mainstream. Right? Yeah. I, the reason I asked is because the aging field is very odd at the moment, because unfortunately there are no solid underlying paradigms and underlying understanding of what causes aging. And this comes with a lot of problems. And two key problems I find is one, there's a lot of snake oil. So, you know, that is something that needs to be cracked down upon. A lot of people have been bitten by this. So arguably, that's why they don't, you know, want to get interested on the aging front. So one is, you know, try and crack down on that slightly especially when it comes to supplements, things like that, which aren't heavily regulated. The second thing, which is a bit of a problem, is there are many individuals who don't really work on aging per se, but use it for advertising purposes. You know, they work on something utterly unrelated. And then you get the word aging as an add-on to try and increase publicity of their work. And then, you know, the general public is sitting there reading and they think, right, that's aging research, what on earth? 
you know, can, I can, think they should. Can you give me an example? Because I have an example in my head, but I don't know if it's the same example in your head. Well, you give me yours and we'll. Well, I'm thinking about like how, I mean, are you, are you talking about how like, you know, skincare products, you know, always are like, oh, this is going to be anti-aging or, I mean, th- that I feel like is, has some direct application of what we're talking about. What, what are you referring to? Well, you know, even with the skincare products, there might be something in there that is beneficial, perhaps, you know, I'm talking about, especially on the research front where individuals work on topics that have nothing to do with aging. Sometimes this is even work funded by, you know, the National Institute of Aging or large government bodies like that. And I I feel, you know, very sort of sad when I see something like that, to be quite frank, because here, you know, it was money that was meant to be spent in aging. And what is the outcome? You don't get very much of an outcome because from the right get-go, from the start, those individuals weren't actually focused on aging. You know, I think we have to be very careful when it comes to what is aging research and what we classify as research in aging. Sure. Well, this goes to this, that leads nicely into another question. So how do you, you know, the, the big joke about the NIA is it's the National Institutes on Alzheimer's, right? Because all the money there goes towards Alzheimer's research. Are you talking about that specifically? Like Alzheimer's research should be, you know, go, you know, should that money be going towards geroscience or should other money be going to, towards geroscience? Like how, how does that all work? Like how much money do you think should be going towards these diseases of aging versus aging itself? I mean, do you think it should be, you know? Yeah, should- that's a, it's a tough one because, you know, even Alzheimer's comes with a huge burden. And the question is, you know, where do you put the money? You put the money where the biggest problems are. I think that certainly should be some money that goes, you know, straight into aging research and understanding the underlying cause or causes of aging. So what I mean here is, you know, there are two things which I think can be justified. One is spending money on trying to understand and unravel the underlying causes of aging. You know, what that is, what the mechanisms are, and how this affects the whole spectrum of age-related disease. So that's one bucket. The other bucket, I think, is even when it comes to specific problem diseases, Alzheimer's, cancer, sure, if you're actually trying to understand the underlying process and come up with cures, that is fine. But if you are studying some obscure protein pathway that's not really related to anything, and then you use the word aging as an add-on, that then becomes a problem. And I think an unforeseen consequence of the hallmarks of aging is any one of those hallmarks could justify a lab saying, you know, we're studying aging when they're studying some weird symptom of aging. That's a, that's a problem with the hallmarks of aging. Gotcha. That, that is a problem. That is definitely a problem. How do you resolve that? Do you have any ideas? I think just stricter criteria in terms of what actually, you know, can fall in the, under the bucket of studying aging. As long as it's a specific age-related disease or it's the underlying cause, fine. But, you know, there needs to be some justification about how that then results in a disease. Sure. And just another thought I had was, who's who's setting this criteria? Do you think this is like the job of, you know, governmental bodies or, you know, how does the criteria set? Mm. So that's a tricky one. And I think that is, yes, it will be government bodies because eventually who gives you your funding? The government bodies, you know? Whether you like it or not indirectly, they decide what the research is in some way or the other. But I think what you need there is some really good advisors. 
I think they need to work with scientists, come up with, you know, and medics and doctors especially, and then, you know, come up with some good criteria for what should be acceptable and what shouldn't. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Agreed. You know, just on that thought there, it feels like there needs to be more longevity scientists, just from my point of view, there needs to like, like, I feel like the same, like forward, like this is, I'm just kind of going on a tangent here, but it feels like the same forward by like 10 advisors are on every project, right? We need more people in this field. I think you probably would agree with that too. So the last question I'm going to ask you is how do we get more people into the aging and longevity field? We, we, you know, we kicked around the idea before of, you know, getting this more in the mainstream media, but to you, like what's the single best way to get people into this field as a career? I think there needs to be more of a mix between the medical side and the aging side. You know, and I answer that very quickly because you can see I've been, you know, thinking about this problem for quite some time now. In fact, a lot of my work, as I said, focuses on bridging this gap between aging theory and medicine. And my current problem with a lot of the aging field is there's no sort of route to medical disease. You know, the aging theory is there and there's no way to prove any of that theory. And the question is always, how does that theory translate to disease? And I think a huge problem at the moment is there's not a lot of mixing between the aging research scientists and the medics. Okay. And I think there needs to be something done over there where you encourage this mixing. And are you encouraging doctors to, you know, be involved with aging research or are you just encouraging, you know, them to do research together or like, what what are you actually encouraging or just them talking more? What's, what what are you hoping out of this? All three of those things, because any one of those things will help because at the moment you have very little of even one of them. So, you know, any one of those three would be invaluable. You know, when I approach my work, the question I always ask is how does this end up causing a particular disease? You know, does it explain a disease? And even in terms of the theory, there are very few theories that do that, you know, for any particular disorder or disease, you know, be it your evolutionary biologists, your geneticists, whomever, it would be nice to include some more on the medical side. And there should be some sort of a requirement, I think, to do that. Requirement in terms of like, you need to have an advisor for your trial that is a medical doctor, or if you're a company needed, like, what do you mean? What do you mean specifically? Yes. So you could have a medical advisor. That's one option, or at least try and exchange ideas with medical doctors. One thing I've noticed at the moment is most regulatory bodies, be it the FDA or in the UK, the MHRA, they don't approve, you know, any drug unless it actually affects some sort of disease, which is a problem with many or so-called problem with many age-related diseases. The fact that, you know, there's no one particular disease they're going to treat. Now, I don't think that's a problem. I think that's a very good thing, right? Even vitamin C or BOD, you know, you don't have your vitamin C, you're going to end up with scurvy. You don't have your vitamin D, you're going to end up with rickets. So all of these are treating a disease. And I think, you know, Similar sort of requirements should be made with both the aging research as you have with the regulatory approval. If there's, if it's not treating a specific disease or there's no link to a disease, then, you know, the question is, why are you working on it? I think it prevents people from getting away with fluff and pretending that that fluff has any value in terms of, you know, the work they do. Huh. That's fascinating. 
you know, it is weird. There, there should be more doctors in this longevity space. Like I see, I see a few every so often, but do you have any ideas on how to encourage that more? How, how do, you, do you make like a group or do you do outreach? How, how do you, how do you encourage more doctors to get involved? That's an interesting one. I suppose creating opportunities, you know, if the opportunity is there, it's easier for the doctor to come over, be it in terms of grants and funding, in terms of them being allowed to take time out of their work. You know, this could be, especially in the UK where you have your national health system, national health service, you know, there could be opportunities made for doctors, you know, where they come in and they start working on aging projects. I mean, it's good for them as well to get publications at the end of the day. Or even, you know, alternatively, perhaps engaging research scientists to be encouraged to move into medical settings and learn more about medicine so they can then implement that into their work. Yeah, we actually didn't even mention that. Having aging scientists go into the medical field is probably also very helpful, right? Giving doctors the aging perspective while you know doing their medicine probably would would help them right and and yeah the more the more doctors i think we can get to think that way i think the better for the field and better for health outcomes that's what do you think certainly yes and i think the more aging researchers start focusing on disease as well i mean you know often they have the background to at least you know not treat a patient but certainly they have the background to learn about a disease right 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 Right. Huh. Well, that's an interesting problem that we should, we'll, we'll follow up on that. That's actually something I'm interested in now, getting more doctors into the field. All right, Karina, we're almost at the end here. So what I like to do with my guests on the H-Band podcast is ask them to say something hopeful and positive about the future. Why should I be excited to wake up tomorrow and the next day? And why should everybody be excited to wake up tomorrow and the next day? What's in store for the future? What gets you excited? The idea that you can spend a little more time with the ones you love on this planet. That, you know, life is not necessarily going to be as short as we think. And the wonderful memories we have, you know, we can have more time to form them. I think that's what gets me really excited. Me too. Me too. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you, about you, but I, I had a, my, my grandmother died of Alzheimer's and, it, you know, it's a very slow and slow and painful process. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. So it's, it's okay. Sad. It's something I wish I could go back and prevent, but so is life. But anyways, yeah, you know, the, the idea of even making more memories with her, right. Is, you know, even if she wasn't going to live longer, but you know, because Alzheimer's specifically, it really robs you of yourself, right. It's, you're not the same person you were and it's, it's, a progression, but you know, from the start, you start losing yourself, right? And so, you know, I, I hear I hear stories about my grandmother all the time, and I wish I was able to experience those more, you know. And so, yeah, you know, and every time I see something not go the way I want it to go in terms of health outcomes in my family or friends or whatever it is, I feel like it kind of motivates me more to 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 to, to make that extra phone call or you know reach out to that extra congressperson or do that thing. So. You know, we, we have a lot of work to do, but people with the fire to do it, like you and I are, are you know, I'm, I'm happy we have us on the team and, and specifically you, Karina, because you're brilliant and your perspective. Very kind of you to say. Yeah, well, look, everybody's more brilliant in this field than I am. So I, I say that as kind of just a reflexive thing, but really seriously, I mean, this field is just full of brilliant people. So that, that if I had to say one thing that got me up in the morning, it might, it might be that, you know, the fact that we have so many really smart 
dedicated people in this field, not just in this field. I mean, I, I know you're into clean energy as well, clean tech, right? And you know, the, the fact that we have so many dedicated people on that front, so the fact that we have so many people on the front of making sure AI is safe, right? All these different things that have the potential to change our world in the in, in the positive. But you know, it's going to take work. All those people who are pushing towards that future give me hope. So yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm glad you're doing this, Karina. If we could clone like 50 of you, I think we might have aging solved sooner rather than later. Yeah. So I, I think that's it for us, Karina. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to the audience? Do you have any sort of papers or you know events that you're doing? Do you want to just mention anything else? Well, papers, there are always many, many coming out. I suppose the only thing I would really say is if you think why this field is interesting, think of the people you love and then, you know, think of having them around for longer. That's for sure. I guess the other thing I have coming up is a company I've started, so one called Linkjevity. So that's really one aimed at going from the aging theory to tangible outcomes in medicine. So that's one to check out and watch out for. So hopefully that's not going to have an impact. Linkjevity? Yes. All right. All right. Well, we'll have to, have you guys launched? Where are you guys in that process? Very early stage, but going to launch very shortly. I have already got some tangible outcomes coming out. So that's what I think makes it all the more exciting. Congratulations. That's awesome. We'll have to do an update interview with you in like a, a, a year from now to, to see how the company. Certainly. Certainly. And that's one that actually mixes the medics with the aging research cool. scientists. Put your theory into, into action. I love it. That's what we need. There you go. It's all about tangible outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to go back to what I said before, I'm, you know, I'm not a theory guy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a do things kind of guy. So, you know, this sounds like a, a very exciting endeavor. So I'll have to follow up with you on that. And uh, hopefully we can do another interview sometime in the next year or so, so we can get a little update. Sure. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, Karina, I want to thank you for joining the HBAN podcast and I look forward to the next installation we do with you. Yes, and thank you again. Live long and prosper. Thank you, Karina, for making the time to join us today. And thank you all at home for listening. I hope you all found this conversation as enlightening as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HBAN will return in a couple of weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.